Good morning, everyone. It is Monday, October 21st, 2019, and you're listening to another episode of the DC United podcast. My name is Michael Cohen, and I'm the Senior Director of Content and Strategy for DC United. Thank you very much for joining me on today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the DCUnited.com website. If you happen to be checking us out on DCUnited.com, we encourage you to check out the Inside the Black and Red tab located under the News section where you can find all archived episodes of this podcast as well as links to our Reliving the 1999 Season series which takes a look back at the 20th anniversary of the MLS Cup winning side. You can also find all of our tactical match previews, behind the scenes stories, and everything else you need to stay caught up on the black and red. And if you happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts, we encourage you to leave us a star rating, leave a comment, let us know what you like, what you dislike, and what you might want to hear in future episodes of the show. Now, as you probably guessed, today's episode is going to be breaking down the playoff game between DC United and Toronto FC. It was the first round of the MLS Cup playoffs in the new one-and-done format, meaning you either win or you go home. There are no multiple-leg matchups as there used to be in MLS during the first few rounds of the playoffs. So, DC United, as the number five seed, traveled north of the border to Toronto, to BMO Field, where they took on Toronto FC, a team that was unbeaten in its last 10 matches coming into the game, a mixture of wins and draws during that streak, but a team that was without two of its best players. They would not have center back Omar Gonzalez, a player who, when he was in the lineup, they posted a record of seven wins, one loss, six draws. They also did not have striker Josie Altador, one of the best finishers in the league, obviously a mainstay with the U.S. men's national team and somebody who really is the focal point of Toronto FC's attack. So that was sort of the backdrop on the Toronto side. And on the D.C. United side, it was pretty much a healthy ship. They had everybody ready to go, available for this game, and Ben Olsen trotted out the familiar lineup that he had during the five-game shutout streak that D.C. United had to finish the season. It was a 4-2-3-1 with Wayne Rooney up top and Paul Areola in the number 10 spot just beneath him. So that was sort of how things shook out for both sides, and obviously by now you probably know the score. It was 5-1 in favor of Toronto FC in extra time. It was 1-1 at the end of regulation, and then Toronto scored four goals in a span of 15 minutes during the first extra time session to break the game open and ultimately coast to a 5-1 win that saw them advance to the second round of the Eastern Conference playoffs where they will travel to New York City to take on NYCFC at City Field in Queens instead of Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. The game actually started really well, I thought, for DC United. This was a game where throughout the week a couple of players acknowledged that the chances of DC United dominating possession or at least possessing the ball more than Toronto was pretty slim. They kind of knew that this was going to have to look like a lot of the games in that five-match unbeaten streak to close the season where they defended you know, as stoutly as they possibly could and then they tried to hit on the counter or just take advantage of the scarce possession that they did have by converting whatever chances they were able to create. And I thought for the first five to seven minutes, DC United was on the front foot. And and it kind of made sense. You know, if, if it's a game where you know that you're going to be defending for the majority of the 90 minutes, why not come out really quickly, start like gangbusters, and, and just try and nick one. Try and get a goal early. See if you can go up one nothing and completely change the tenor of the game before you have to absorb 
all of that pressure. And on the other side, I think Toronto was kind of trying to figure out what it wanted to be and what it wanted to do without Josie Altidore. And ultimately what happened was they used a false nine formation, which means instead of a traditional striker, so instead of a Wayne Rooney or a Ola Kamara or a Zlatan Ibrahimovic, instead of somebody like that, they put a player up top similar to a Lucho Acosta or a Paul Areola, a, a really an attacking midfielder by nature. And that was Alejandro Pozuelo the leading scorer and leading assist man for Toronto this season. So Pozuelo played up top as a false nine, and he continuously checked back into the midfield, you know, sort of dropping deeper and deeper into possession, trying to get on the ball. And then you had the two wingers making runs behind him, trying to fill that open space, sort of acting like forwards, slicing in behind the defense, trying to cause problems for DC United. But it took Toronto a little bit of time to figure that out. And I think that's why DC was able to get out onto the front foot. But as the first half progressed, things sort of settled into the expected pattern, which was Toronto possessing the ball, Toronto moving it around, DC settling into its two blocks of four defensively, and just making life miserable for Toronto with its two center backs, who are arguably the two best center backs in the league in terms of a tandem, and that's, of course, Stephen Birnbaum and Frederick Briant. And then, you know, you pair those guys with goalkeeper Bill Hamid, who is up for MLS Goalkeeper of the Year and having the best statistical season of his career. Those three guys, you know, sort of in the spine of the defense, are as strong as, as any team's trio in those three positions around the league. So they were making things miserable. They were clearing the ball. They were marking well. They were making sure all aerial battles were won by DC. And and you saw an early edge for DC United in duels and aerials, which was to be expected. But as I mentioned, as the half continues, Toronto settles in and things start to go a little bit awry in the 32nd minute. That's when Toronto breaks the game open with the first goal to take a 1-0 lead. There was sort of a a curling shot from Pozuelo from the top left corner of the box. He was trying to go from the top left corner to the bottom right corner. And he intelligently kept the shot low and skimmed it off a wet, cold surface, one bounce right in front of Bill Hamid. And you'll often hear announcers say on any soccer broadcast that goalkeepers really hate it when the ball sort of short hops right in front of them, if, if I'm going to use a baseball analogy. And it's, it's true. When the ball bounces really late, you know, you don't have as much time to react, to set yourself. Things can bobble off the ground in a little bit of a way that you don't expect. There could be spin that you're having trouble reading. It just introduces more variables and more problems for a goalkeeper. And so this ball caused a little bit of a problem for Hamid. It wasn't one that he could catch cleanly, even though there wasn't a ton of power on the shot. And so he had to try and parry it away. And when he tried to parry it to his left, unfortunately, it went directly to Marco Delgado, who was Johnny on the spot for a tap-in. So it was a combination of a ball that Bill Hamid knows better and one that he has to parry to safety or out of bounds or just anywhere away from a defender. And then it looked like Birnbaum kind of switched off for a second momentarily. Perhaps he thought Hamid had it covered given the, the lack of juice on the shot, but Marky Delgado snuck in right behind Birnbaum and was able to poke the ball in for a one nothing lead 
in the 32nd minute. So now DC United is forced to come out of its shell a little bit. They have to try and go get the game because, as I mentioned, this is not a two-leg playoff where in the past, if a team loses the first leg 1-0 or 2-1, it's not the end of the world on the road because then you go home and you expect to be able to have more possession at home to be able to dictate the flow a little bit better and then maybe you come away with enough goals to win you know, on, on overall aggregate like you see in Champions League. But that was not the case. So DC had to come out of its shell and they had to go get the game. And that became a little bit more difficult in the 41st minute when Felipe Martins, the midfielder that arrived ahead of the uh, transfer window closing from Vancouver, he goes off with an injury. And ordinarily this wouldn't seem like too big of a problem, but I do think it caused a little bit of uncertainty for United because you saw how many players had to change positions just to accommodate this one sub and make the lineup as strong as possible. So in the 41st minute, Felipe goes off injured. You have Ola Kamara coming in to replace him. So Kamara goes from the bench to the striker position. That shifts Wayne Rooney from striker back to center attacking mid where Paul Areola normally played. Then Russell Knaus shifted from right back into center defensive mid to take Felipe's spot, and that meant Paul Areola went from a very attack-minded position in the number 10 spot to being the right back in a four-man back line where he has more defensive responsibilities than offensive responsibilities. Now, all of the players I just mentioned are comfortable in the positions that they switched to, so it wasn't a situation where DC United was suddenly putting players in spots that they weren't familiar with. That happened later in the game, which we'll get to in a little bit. But it was a scenario where you plan for something all week long and really two weeks, given the international break between the end of the regular season and the playoffs, and then all of a sudden your roles are changing. You didn't get the necessary practice reps or time in that particular spot. Maybe the chemistry isn't quite as strong with that particular lineup. So I think that posed a little bit of a problem for DC United. But nonetheless, they go into halftime down one nothing, knowing that in the early portions of the game, they had created some chances and that other than a, a few, you know, maybe worrisome moments here or there, they had really kept Toronto at bay for most of the first half other than the fluky goal. But the fact that DC United had to chase the game posed a little bit of a problem. Everybody in the last two months of the season dissected, analyzed, and discussed the inability to score goals regularly for DC United's attack and how that five-game unbeaten streak, that five-game shutout streak, was really a complete product of the defense, keeping this team alive and, and dragging them into the playoffs. And so I think the proof of that was DC United not having a shot on target until the 62nd minute. But this is where Wayne Rooney had a trio of opportunities that you would ordinarily expect him to bury at least two of them, if not all three, you know, eight or nine times out of 10 with his quality in the box. And, you know, for, for all of the things that, that may have gone away from him at this stage of his career, perhaps he's lost a little bit of pace, perhaps he's lost a little bit of an endurance, all those types of things. Uh, his clinical ability inside the box still remains. And anybody who has seen DC United practice over the last two seasons can attest to that. He finishes everything. He remains a very skilled poacher in and around the box. And so he gets his first opportunity in the 62nd minute. And as I mentioned, that is the first shot on goal for DC United. There is a 
Ball crossed in, he gets a soft volley on it. Not a lot of power, but he still makes decent contact, and it goes right down the middle to goalkeeper Quentin Westberg, who ended up being a tremendous, tremendous asset for Toronto FC in this game, especially in the two minutes following what I just described. So in the 64th minute, just two minutes later, Wayne Rooney has two unbelievable chances to tie this game. The first one, he somehow splits two defenders, the two center backs for Toronto, and winds up with an opportunity to shoot from you know just outside the penalty area, an opportunity for him to put the ball to either side of the goalkeeper. Uh, with, with his ability, you expect him to at least work the goalkeeper. And instead, he kind of fires it you know, within diving distance, comfortable diving distance of Westberg, who palms the shot away. And then seconds later, um, there's a cross from Joseph Mora, and Rooney has an opportunity for a full volley. He makes great contact and sticks it again right to Westberg. So three chances in the span of three minutes, two minutes, excuse me, where Rooney could have tied the game and ultimately didn't. And and those moments, I think, would, would probably come back to, to haunt him. And, you know, he talked about during the week wanting to atone for missing his penalty kick during the shootout in last year's MLS playoffs. And suddenly in Toronto, in what would be his last game for DC United, he had three opportunities to redeem himself, put the ball in the back of the net, tie the game, and see where things went, and he wasn't able to do so. About 13 minutes later, Ola Kamara gets his chance, and if you had to pick a second player to have a marquee opportunity, the kind of chance to to really deadlock this game, you know, Kamara would be the second guy that you would pick. This is a player who arrived at the transfer deadline for a reported fee of $2.5 million. That is a big sum in Major League Soccer. He's a proven goal scorer in this league. So in the 77th minute, when there's a wayward back pass by Toronto from one of the defenders intended for their goalkeeper, Westberg, just a very poorly designed, poorly executed pass, Kamara intercepts it, and he's one-on-one with the goalkeeper. He rips a left-footed shot, makes great contact, but... It goes off the thigh of Westberg, cleared away, out of bounds, and there's another golden opportunity squandered. So not only could DC United have tied the game, but certainly they had opportunities to take the lead in this game. And then you started to see Ben Olsen make some subs toward the latter part of 90 minutes, trying to find a way back into this game, trying to find a way to get an equalizer and, you know, force overtime, you know, maybe go to a shootout where they certainly have a lot of faith in Bill Hamid. The first sub was Lucho Acosta coming on for Ulysses Segura, one of a a playmaking type of sub, giving Acosta the opportunity to roam, to get on the ball, to try and make plays, and use his his skill and his ability to, to maneuver tight spaces to try and create something for United. And then the other sub was Emmanuel Boateng for Joseph Mora. So that is a wide midfielder for a fullback. So at that point in time, DC United had no true fullbacks on the field for the final chunk of regulation and then into overtime. And and that's a little bit of foreshadowing in terms of what played out for uh, United. But then in the 93rd minute with what was probably going to be the last kick of the game, Wayne Rooney fires in a corner. It ends up on the head of Fred Briant, who has a beautiful flick from the near post to the back post, just as you're taught in those situations. And Areola takes a swing at it and misses, but there is Titi Rodriguez on the back post to slam the ball into the net, tying things up in the most unlikely fashion in the third minute of extra time, 
forcing overtime and stunning the crowd at BMO Field who knew that if their side had just cleared away that corner kick, that the referee probably would have blown the whistle and they would have been advancing. But instead, the game goes to overtime. And in Major League Soccer, the rules are two 15-minute overtime periods guaranteed. There is no more golden goal. So even if somebody scores very early, you play out the remainder of the 30 minutes no matter what. And if the teams are deadlocked at the end of that period, they go to extra time. Now, I sort of hinted a little bit that there would be some formational problems for United in overtime, given the heavy volume of offensive substitutions that they made. It it made their formation lopsided and put some players in, in sort of compromised positions. At the start of overtime, Russell Knaus goes back to his original position at right back, and TT Rodriguez shifts from a left-sided midfielder to left back because Joseph Mora has gone out of the game. But the problem is that leaves a very offensive-minded midfield without a lot of bite, possession, and things like that in the middle. You still have Junior Moreno, who is holding on for dear life as a defensive midfielder, but then you kind of have a mass of bodies that are floating all over the place in front of him. You have Wayne Rooney, Ima Boateng, Lucho Acosta, all kind of floating around, not really appearing like they know exactly where they want to be, or all three of them are just sort of improvising and playing this unattached role where they move around. And then you had Paul Ariola kind of stuck out on the right-hand side, providing service and width on that part of the field. And you would think, though, that even with some of these formational inefficiencies, that United had all the momentum. I mean, look, They had been clawing and scratching and fighting and and snarling and trying to get anything they could into the back of the net, and they do that, and they stun Toronto. And Toronto is without its best defender, they're without their best striker, and you think, okay, maybe DC United can pop in another one in extra time, or at the very least, they can resort to the defense that got them into the playoffs, sit back, sit tight for 30 minutes, defend, 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 go to penalty kicks, and take their chances there. But all of that sort of goes out the window pretty quickly. In the third minute of overtime, there's a nice bit of tight interplay between Michael Bradley and Nick DeLeon, the former DC United player, and then from Nick DeLeon to Richie Larea, and he gets into the penalty area around the corner of the six-yard box and slots one home to give Toronto a two-to-one lead just three minutes into overtime and just as stunned as Toronto was when Titi Rodriguez leveled the game, uh, DC United was equally as stunned that they had conceded so quickly after regaining all of the momentum. And then two minutes later, things get worse. There's a corner kick that sort of gets jammed around the back post after it's knotted down on a header by Drew Moore. And then all of a sudden, Jonathan Osario is there to poke the ball into the back of the net. It kind of looked like DC United didn't really know what was going to happen. Maybe they thought there was going to be a foul called for sort of um, impeding Bill Hamid, the goalkeeper. But nonetheless, the goal stood. Jonathan Osario pokes it into the back of the net. And suddenly, DC United has allowed two goals in the span of two minutes. They're now down 3-1. to And from there, things just really unraveled. And in the 103rd minute... Pozuelo has the ball on the right side of the box. It kind of looks like he's toying between running some clock, knowing that they're probably going to win the game, and going for sort of a kill shot, if you will. He ends up crossing the ball with his left foot across the 18-yard box, and there's a half-volley opportunity for Osario, who puts it away into the corner. Now it's 4-1. And then three minutes after that, insult to injury, 
There's a fifth goal, an upper 90 shot from Nick DeLeon, the former DC United man, like I mentioned. He goes from the top left corner of the box to the upper right corner of the goal after Hamid had made an unbelievable diving save on DeLeon just seconds earlier to force the corner kick that ultimately resulted in DeLeon having that shooting opportunity. But now it's 5-1, the route is on, tensions flare, Uh, the game ultimately gets out of hand with Paul Areola being sent off due to a second yellow card. There were some feisty moments when Leo Hara was subbed in and made an aggressive sliding tackle. Bill Hamid had to make three more diving saves in the second half of extra time. So not only did this get completely out of hand in the span of 15 minutes, it certainly could have gone as high as 6 or 7, maybe even 8 to 1 in the second overtime had Bill Hamid not stood on his head and finished the game with 12 saves. So before we talk a little bit more about what went wrong in this game and how things sort of unraveled, let's hear from D.C. United coach Ben Olsen, who offered his post-game thoughts at BMO Field. Describe your emotions after uh, after the swings late in that game. It's hard to process that, right? It's a, a lot of emotion to, to tie it up there late um, and play what I thought was a pretty good game. Better chances uh, in, uh, than them, really, in, in in regular time, and didn't put them away. Uh, and then early in the uh, overtime, you, you give up uh, two goals, and then the wheels kind of come off, and they make a bunch of plays. Um, again, it's a they just came out with maybe a better mentality out of out of the break. They, they punished us for it. It seemed kind of the same idea. Three really good looks like goal that you normally expect him to finish. Well, you got Wayne's three and you got Ola's uh, 1v1. And, uh, you know, we, we again, we didn't, I guess, over the course of the day, didn't make enough plays to uh, win it in regular regular time. And then we threw so much at it uh, in the end, personnel-wise. Well, maybe that has something to do with it on the turn going into uh, the overtime where you know, our personnel uh, wasn't right and, and we gave up some early goals. Uh, but it, it's disappointing. It's, it's an unfair scoreline <laughs> when you look at the, the, uh, the game itself in regular time. But they also scored five goals and we scored one. The outcome was obviously settled after the first 15 minutes of extra time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you decided to take Wayne off. Was what went into no, that? it was just you know, get a, get some legs in the center of the park. Uh, he put a lot of he put a lot of miles in today, and uh, you know, just yeah, nothing nothing other than getting some a fresh body in there. That said, now that this marks the the end of his of his tenure here, what uh, what goes through your your mind with him? Well, I, I enjoyed it very much. Uh, I, I think he gave a lot to the organization, uh, both from a team standpoint, on the field, some wonderful moments. Uh, he, he was a great teammate. Uh, I, I think he was uh, good to our fans and, and very appreciative of the support he got uh, with with our fan base, but also the community in uh, the D.C. area. And, uh, you know, personally, again, it was, it was a joy to work with him. And uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think he's made me a better coach. Uh, and, 
again, he's, he, but for the most part, he was pretty easy to manage. And, uh, it's, a, it's an unfortunate way for him to finish here. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he would have wanted to uh, hit the back of the net and, and, and push us into the next round, but that's not how it went today. Ben, how do you how do you feel personally as the, you know, three times in a row that you guys have gotten bounced out in the opening round? Um, I'm sure there's a lot of frustration, but where's your head at personally right now? Well, I haven't thought much about that. and uh, I'm just disappointed that we, we, we couldn't get through today and... and but I, again, I was proud of the effort and proud to get here. And, uh, but yeah, frustrated and disappointed that we, we, we haven't been able to get out of the first round. Uh, and, and we'll look to uh, fix that. You had to quickly make changes when Felipe went injured and had to come off. How important has he been um, since the transfer window and in the, the parts of the game he played today? Yeah, I mean, he, he didn't. Uh, he came off pretty early and. and you know, Felipe has been a big part of our uh, our squad, and especially this little turnaround that we've had uh, since the summer. But I, I, you know, I thought Russ jumped jumped in and did just fine. And, you, know, you saw some of Russ's qualities with, with ball winning, and uh, that that really actually helped us, I think, within the game. And uh, Paul did a fine job at right back. But again, when you when you start throwing the kitchen sink at teams to try to get the the tying goal uh, when you get it you're a little bit disorganized and uh, I think that's the p- part of the reason why uh, things didn't go so well there early but uh, we're pros so we, we should have a better uh, a, a better mentality and, and make better plays there during that early stretch it felt like you guys got a little more comfortable when Bruni came a little deeper after the injury um, what have you seen from his leadership on the field today but also off the field around a big game like this He's, he's our captain. He's our leader. I mean, you know, again, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. He dropped back. He, he did what he did. Um, it's unfortunate he didn't score the goals because he put himself in a few very good spots uh, to, you know, uh, put us ahead and, and uh, or tie a little bit earlier in regular time. Uh, so, uh, again, I, we just didn't make, I guess, enough plays throughout the, the, uh, the regular time to win it and then in early and extra time uh, the, the wheels fell off a little bit what, what do you uh, looking ahead now I mean I know it's it's early but where do you think this team stands now turning towards the offseason really we, um, you want me to go down the list no no not even who's here I don't know just I, I, I don't know we'll, we'll be okay we'll, we'll be okay and, and we'll put a, a, a very competitive team out there next year uh, but I'm not that concerned with next year right now. Um, concerned with picking that team up and uh, uh, making sure they still understand that I'm proud of them. And uh, it was a um, uh, to get to this point and to get in the extra time. Uh, but we need to be better. That's also if we, if we want to, you know, move on and keep pushing and, and ultimately hold trophies. We got to get over this low hurdle. So I agree with Olsen that the effort throughout the game, you know, up until those first 15 minutes of extra time was pretty spectacular. I thought guys were flying around the field. I thought there was a lot of energy, a lot of aggression, a lot of passion being showed. 
But in general, from watching the game on television, it just it sort of felt to me like it was a sloppy performance. And, and I think those two things can be independent of each other. Players can have an uncharacteristically sloppy or poor performance while still trying really, really hard. Maybe things just aren't coming off. Maybe their passing is a little bit you know, underwhelming on the given day. And so I wanted to look into some of the passing numbers and see if there was anything to that. And sure enough, it was an uncharacteristically poor passing day for DC United. Throughout the season, they averaged a completion rate of 79.3% of their passes. That dropped down to 73% against Toronto. Now, maybe that 6% doesn't sound like a lot, but in a one-and-done playoff scenario, to drop 6% below your season average, it might not be an end-all, be-all, but it's certainly a very inopportune time to have a below-average passing performance from the season. And then there were some individuals where the numbers were even more drastic. Russell Knauss, I thought, when he moved to right back, and just in general, even when he plays center midfield, um, is a very conscious individual, and he always makes the correct pass. He doesn't turn the ball over much. He's very accurate. And there were games, I highlighted it on this podcast uh, earlier in the season when he moved to right back where his passing numbers were, were in the 90% completion rate for, for certain games at right back. This was certainly one of his poorer performances when it came to passing statistics. For the season, he completed 85.1% of his passes. That number dropped all the way down to 71% against Toronto. When you look at Paul Areola, it was obviously a day he would like to forget getting sent off in the playoffs and missing an opportunity here or there. His passing was a little bit wayward as well. 74.2% success rate during the regular season, 64% success rate against Toronto. And one of the most telling for me was Junior Moreno. Now, I mentioned how conscious and accurate Russell Knauss is. Well, Junior Moreno is that and, and maybe even a little bit more. He was the team's leading passer this season in terms of completed successful pass percentage at 88%. Even he dropped down to 80% against Toronto. So you start to get an idea of sort of everybody being just a couple percent here and there off from what they normally are. And again, in a one-off setting, it's that inopportune time to have less than your best day. And when a few guys around the field have less than their best day, it can, pro, it can pose excuse me, some problems for a team in a playoff scenario. The other thing that sort of struck me a little bit when I was watching the game is that even though Toronto was, was hanging on and, and protecting that one nothing lead, and there were times when they dropped really deep defensively, it never felt quite like some of the other games where DC United was chasing in the latter parts of the game. And I'm not necessarily talking about the final five weeks of the regular season because they got results in those games, but there were others where they desperately needed a goal. Uh, the Philadelphia away match when they were down 3-1 comes to mind, or the second half against FC Cincinnati in the regular season finale where they were up two players and needed a goal in order to, to get a home game at Audi Field in the playoffs. And so those opportunities were times when Lucho Acosta's skill set was the most beneficial for DC United. And the reason for that is when the other team sits very, very deeply and compactly, you need a player who can break that down with tactical skill, with vision, with quickness, with change of direction, footwork, all those types of things. And that is where Lucho Acosta excels. You often hear Ben Olsen say that he is their player who is good at unlocking defenses. That's the word that, that coaches use a lot. Unlock a low block defense. But 
As you may have heard on the broadcast, the announcers kept saying how Lucho Acosta's been on the field for 15 minutes and I don't think he's touched the ball. Lucho Acosta's been on the field for 25 minutes and he's barely touched the ball. And it turned out there was something to that. Lucho Acosta played 42 minutes against Toronto FC. He touched the ball 21 times, which means he touched it an average of once every two minutes. I went back throughout this season, and then because his role was kind of diminished this season, I wanted to compare it to last season to see how often he was touching the ball when he was at his best. This season, in his minutes played throughout all of the regular season, Lucho Acosta touched the ball once every 1.3 minutes when he was on the field. And last season, it was once every 1.16 minutes. So, you see there, 1.13 minutes per touch this year, 1.16 minutes per touch last year, and then against Toronto, one touch every two minutes. So, he basically touched it about 45% less than he would in a typical game. So, I don't know if United was having trouble finding him. I don't know if Acosta was was wading into you know places where he shouldn't be going, maybe not finding opportunities to get open, or maybe it was just because this wasn't necessarily a low-block defense by Toronto. They were still countering, still looking for a winner, trying to make it 2 nothing in regulation instead of just holding on to a 1-1 draw or a one nothing lead. And maybe that's why it wasn't as comfortable for Acosta because DC United wasn't really just bombarding, bombarding, bombarding. They were bombarding, but then they had to quickly race back the other way and defend, defend, defend. And it was end-to-end stuff for a lot of the second half of that game. And so those are some of the things that jumped out to me. Some of the passing inaccuracies, the inability to get Lucho Acosta the ball when he was on the field. And then, of course, you had those opportunities, three for Wayne Rooney, one for Ola Kamara, that ordinarily you would think maybe 60, 70, 80% of the time, at least two of those four chances go in if not more. And so some of the questions you heard asked of Ben Olsen are ones that will continue to be asked into the offseason. What happens after Wayne Rooney? Of course, this being his last game with DC United, now going back to Derby County, what will this team look like without him and with Ola Kamara at the number nine position? What happens to players who have drawn transfer interest from abroad, whether that's Frederick Briant or Paul Ariola, will they stay? Will they go when the January transfer window opens? What about the players on loan? Leo Hara is on loan. Lucas Rodriguez is on loan. And probably the most important, Bill Hamid is on loan, and all of their loan deals are set to expire. So this is going to be a very important offseason for DC United. They have a lot of questions to answer about their roster, about their identity, about what type of soccer they want to play moving forward. There's a lot to figure out between now and training camp at the end of January. So it's certainly going to be a busy time for Olsen, his staff, and general manager Dave Casper. Throughout that busy window, we encourage you to check out our website, dcunited.com. You can find archived episodes of this podcast. Again, we encourage you to check out our Reliving the 1999 series celebrating the 20th anniversary of DC United's third MLS Cup. There's all kinds of videos, Q&As, stories, and other content to push you through the offseason and into 2020. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon.